Good afternoon. You've got Living Writers, and I'm T. Hetzel. Today, I am so happy to be speaking with Charles Baxter um, in our a virtual conversation here. Charlie, thanks so much for being game to join me today for <laughs> for a talk. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you for having me. It's great. It's great to be back uh, on your show is the back in sort of the air quotes kind of <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah well it's you are a, a dear friend of the show and a dear friend indeed so i'm yeah i'm I was going to say I'm pickled, but I think that's the wrong expression. <laughs> that means I think something else completely. <laughs> but I'm, I'm tickled pink. That's what it is. That's getting closer here. Um, well, b- before we ta- start talking about your wonderful new novel, The Sun Collective, I'll read, I'll read the short bio out of the back. Charles Baxter is the author of the novels The Feast of Love, First Light, Saul and Patsy, Shadow Play, and The Soul Thief, and the story collections Believers, Griffin, Harmony of the World, A Relative Stranger, There's Something I Want You to Do, and Through the Safety Net. His stories have been included in the Best American Short Stories, and Baxter lives in Minneapolis. And very recently, many congratulations, Charlie, retired uh, from teaching at the University of Minnesota and the MFA program at writers at Warren Wilson College. And wow. So <laughs> what's, congratulations. Well, thank and you. What's been happening since then? How are you? <laughs> well, you know, how is anybody right, <laughs> right, right now? Uh, I'm not having the retirement that I thought I would have, you know, I thought I would be traveling and I'd be going to movies and I'd be seeing plays and I'd be seeing friends and reading. And I guess the only part of that, which I actually have been doing has been reading, you know, um, nobody, nobody, well, I guess a few people are traveling, but uh, I'm not. Uh, So, you know, I found myself this morning saying to somebody uh, that we're all living in the midst of this pandemic. We're all living uh, what feels like half lives, you know, or yeah. a quarter of the life that you're used to living. Uh, it's not I mean, if you're healthy and you're not broke, it's not it's not bad. But it's it's not the life that we thought we were going to have. Um, it's not the life I thought I would have yes. as re, as a retired guy. Yes, it's it's almost impossible to imagine and to think. I don't know. I know that as human beings, we're really adaptable. And and like you said, if you've if you're okay, if you're not broke, uh, and first of all, if you have your health and right. the, the ones you love have their health, then so so lucky but thinking about kids growing up right now and how yeah it's like you said it's almost as if part of our senses like some of them are heightened but some of them are are not getting sort of the exercise they're used to well you know that's right and i think you know another phenomenon that um some of my um friends have remarked on and which I've noticed is that because because you're not out and around and you're not doing some of the things that you're used to doing the days go by and if somebody asks you well what were you doing yesterday or the day before yesterday or last week you can't remember mm-hmm. um, because well I mean for the obvious reasons um, you 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 didn't do very much. So I kind of remember what I was doing by what I was reading at at the time. And, you know, that's not 
it's not a bad way to live, but it it's uh, also a little sadder than I think we um, could have anticipated. The, what what the, are you reading, Charlie? Um, let's see. What am I reading? Um, I was reading. I've been reading a lot of Russian and Soviet era literature and um until a couple of days ago i was reading a novel by a uh writer named victor serge s-e-r-g-e it's a novel called the case of comrade tuleyev but uh i finished that book and how did you come to that one charlie i think my editor actually had recommended it i we uh, we have been talking about russian literature and he said oh you should read victor serge uh the case of comrade tuleyev uh and i did it's it's about the soviet era 1937 1938 of stalin's terror mm. um, yeah. and <laughs> You know, as if we didn't have enough to deal with. Um, so, but you might be thinking it's in a way going to it to put other things and to contextualize them or something. Well, yeah, I I think so. I, in fact, I think that's exactly right. I think one of the things that literature helps us do is put things into perspective. And you read a novel like Victor Serge. Uh, the case of Comrade to live, and you think, oh, well, the life I've got now isn't so bad compared to this. <laughs> right. I'm going to get a copy. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Charlie, have you read Ali Smith's, like, her season books? Have you been reading those? Oh, right, those books. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I did read one of them um, summer, I think, and I just it was one of those cases where it's the right book, but the wrong time in your life to read oh, it. Oh, uh, and what do you, can you say more about that? <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, I mean, this is just a crackpot theory, of course. Um, <laughs> Love but, it. But um, some books fall into your hands, particularly when you're an adolescent and a young adult, and it's just the right period in your life for that particular book and um, you carry the book around it, it it's it's as much yours as it is the author's and you you just internalize it and then later in life i think you know you have to bring the right i'm trying to find the right word the, the right predisposition to any particular book. And, you know, if you've had a bad day or you've had a bad week or you've or something has happened in your life to um, make you not receptive to a particular mm -hmm. book, you can sort of recognize that it's a perfectly good book, but that you have to come back to it later. And that's the way I felt about about that book. Uh, it, it also had been a book that, that my editor, Dan Frank, had recommended. And, and I gave it a shot, and I just thought, oh, this is not the right book for me right now. Can you think of a book that was like that for you, that was the one that you like carried around with you? Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, I can remember those books. Uh, and in fact... Um, it's interesting you should ask that question because when I finished the Victor Serge book, I had this um, desire to read a, a novel that I had read in 10th grade, uh, uh, Edith Wharton's uh, Ethan Frome. Oh. Uh, I haven't read that book since 1960. Two or 1963, and I wanted to see, now that I'm an old man, I wanted to see what that book was like and why it had appealed to me as much as it did. Uh, and I think I, I think I know 
another book, you know, I don't know if we remember the books we read in high school very well, but I also remember reading Thomas Hardy's The Return of the Native. Um, I was a junior in high school, and man, that book just knocked me for a loop. Um, I haven't read it, Charlie. <laughs> it's it's great. It's great, but you know the the reason it's so good to read when you're 17 years old is that if you're in high school and you're a moody adolescent <laughs> right <laughs> which i sure was going <laughs> to uh, drag that through college with me yeah yeah me too and so i like these moody um you know there's a word that Jim Harrison liked uh, unconsolable. I like oh. these moody, unconsolable stories. Uh, and uh, Hardy's book was like that. And Ethan Frome, uh, Edith Wharton's book, is all about suffering. You know, it. It. it I think. You know, I think when you're 16, 17, and 18, your emotions are very pure. Um, you you can hear that if you listen to high school and college choirs. Those kids sing with such purity of feeling. And um, that's sort of what I think about those those two books. I mean, the other books that really got to me when I was an adolescent are probably ones that nobody remembers or has heard of um but those two i mean uh, well what are what are they charlie give it give us a try <laughs> um the night of the hunter oh. by davis grubb it was turned into an um a spectacularly interesting movie directed by uh charles lawton starring oh. robert mitchum doesn't look like anybody else's American film. It looks like, well, maybe it does. It looks like a D.W. Griffith sh uh, silent film or like a German expressionist film. Um, but the, the novel is wonderful. It was, I think it was the first time I'd read a book with a real lyrical flow. I had never read Sherwood Anderson in those days. So um, I I absorbed it from Davis Scrub. It was one of those books that made me want to be a writer. So, and so you absorbed it. So that was like, were you consciously absorbing it? Or do you think it was something that you recognized and as something that you valued and that you believed to be beautiful that could, couldn't like then, like you said, inspire you to be a writer? Um, I just knew that I loved it. And and I just knew that within the pages of that book or these other books, I felt welcome, which was an unusual feeling for me in those days. Um, I, I just didn't feel welcome much of anywhere. I think adolescents, adolescent boys, um, uh, the nerdy types of the kind I was, uh, you know, you don't feel welcome at home. You don't feel welcome anywhere. But but these books kind of welcome you in. No, I didn't have the uh, cognitive equipment in those days to analyze why I was responding to these books in the way that I did. Um, I just um, I just absorbed them. I guess it's what you'd call an unmediated experience. It wasn't mediated by any structures of understanding I had. You know what I mean? This, this, I do. That, I'm actually, that, I'm nodding. I know you can't see me. <laughs> I'm <laughs> nodding. Yeah. 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 And, you know, and when you get older, it's harder to have that experience of a book, but now and then you can, it, it still happens. When has it happened to you, even like even in part, if it's not as sort of that feels like kind of all encompassing these other experiences? OK, well, I'll give you an example. I was reading this Victor Serge novel, The Case of Comrade Tuleyev, 
Right. And I was sitting in the waiting room uh, at Bloomington Subaru, and they were <laughs> uh, change. They were rotating the tires of my car and changing the oil. And I got to a part of that book where one of the old Bolsheviks who's under arrest from Stalin decides that he's going to, um, he decides that he's, he's just going to go more or less on a hunger strike and maybe die that way rather than being shot. And I know uh, to your listeners, this sounds just unimaginably grim, mm -hmm. um, but the, the writing just took me away. I, um, I was sitting there in the waiting room of Bloomington Subaru and I hardly knew where I was because I was so wrapped up in the story of this old guy who was going to stage one last brave stand against what he understood to be tyranny. I, and, you know. Oh, uh, that's, that's so moving. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then were they like, Baxter, Baxter. <laughs> Baxter, like over the intercom. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> We've got an extra, an extra car for sale. Anyone who wants. <laughs> right, right. So Charlie, when when you were thinking about, well, you you talked about the books being welcome within the pages and and recognizing something about the written word or literature that was you that could be you. How like how did you? decide that you wanted to try to write because you began with poems right because yeah. I, I was looking on your website and looking <laughs> I love how you have some early poems up there um <laughs> yeah I, you know I, I'm not sure that anybody consciously decides to go into the arts maybe music musicians probably do because they're so obviously gifted in the way that most of us are not, that it's as if a path has been laid out for them. But in my case, I, you know, I, I never had encountered any writers in high school. And it, it seemed like an almost preposterous uh, path to get on because I didn't know how I was going to make a living at it. But at some point in my 20s, I thought, I had the feeling that writing was probably the best thing, the best thing I was good at. The only, maybe the only <laughs> thing I was good at. Um, and even if I had a lot of disappointments, which I did subsequently, uh, it was what I wanted to do. And I had a couple of teachers who encouraged me, you always need that, somebody who will open the door for you. But, I, you know, I think it's much more common now because of all of the MFA programs we've got for young people to think, oh, well, they might have some sort of life as writers. But in the 60s, it was a very unusual career path and absolutely nobody would encourage, well, I'm, I'm contradicting myself. <laughs> I did have two people who encouraged me, but there wasn't much of that. And it certainly didn't come from my parents. In, the, in your 20s, is that when you were teaching elementary school? Um, yeah. Um, I, I graduated from college, from McAllister uh, here in Minnesota. And then I went to Michigan to teach fourth grade in um, pinconning. Uh, it's in the Saginaw Valley, right on Lake Huron. And then I went to graduate school, uh, but not for an MFA. I, I got a, a PhD and came back to Michigan uh, because I landed a job at Wayne State. Uh, and that kept me afloat for a long time, and uh, they were they were pretty good to me at at Wayne State. I slowly but surely started to get a foothold in the life of writing. I was also writing criticism in those days too. 
and it gave you a structure to did you start with stories charlie i really started with poems but a lot of my poems were a narrative they were story poems and they had characters in them and anybody reading them would have said oh, oh this guy really is a narrative poet and he sh probably should be writing fiction and so I turned to writing fiction, but I, my first real efforts were uh, at novels. And the novels were terrible, and nobody would print them. So that's why I started writing short stories, because I had to teach myself how to structure a story and how to build a characterization. And it's easier to learn how to do that if you're writing stories than if you're writing a novel. Novels, as people say, are, the novel is a very forgiving form. And it's easy when you're writing a novel to make a mistake and not notice. Hmm. Uh, not notice until you're 80 or 90 pages past the mistake and the novel has, without your having become quite aware of it, uh, jumped the track and gone off and crashed. Is there a, an example to be more specific with that? Because I almost feel like when you said the novel is a forgiving form, that it means that you would, you would, if you had the perseverance, you will have a novel <laughs> of some shape. I, I can give you an example, um, but it's from a novel that I read at the end of the summer and it's by a very well-known writer who's a friend of mine and the novel has been published and it's a success and there's a terrible technical error in it that made it almost unreadable for me and it has to do with the problem of point of view um, there are four main characters. Three of them are given sections in which their point of view is given. Uh, the fourth one never has his point of view uh, produced in, in the book. And so uh, you're reading through it and you think, oh, he's either, this character is either going to be the person who's guilty or the person who dies. Uh, <laughs> oh, and, okay. And in fact, what this person knows has to get into the book one way or another. And the way it happens is just technically, it's amateur night. And you, you read the book and think, how could anybody who's had bestsellers and is known as a wonderful writer, how could anybody make this sort of mistake? And the way you make it is is just assuming that readers are not going to notice. And, and I guess often they don't. Well, Charlie, what's interesting sometimes is maybe because of its girth and like it's the momentum of a novel, like what it is, you can have the thing, right? But there's, it could also maybe not have the same um, uh, magic. Some I don't mean to say magic, like it's like, but the thing that about something when everything is working in consort somehow or unless it's not meant to but that's part of what's up with the thing and how it works you know it's like the that's its own way of ticking and well I guess what I'm trying to say <laughs> is is that that and maybe that's the thing that with novels that have all of these these attentions given to them by the writer the the reader might not even know it but it's the one that it's the thing that makes the novel that could be lasting or the the novel that will stay with that particular reader longer right right well and and also it's important to remember that fellow novelists people who write novels and have uh, written fiction for a long time I think don't read fiction the way many readers do. We look uh, mm -hmm. at structure, we look at 
the use of setting, we 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 look at the way the the writer has employed characterization, and you know writers read critically unless uh, the unless the novel is so powerful that it just takes them away. It's very hard. Like no. a Vic, like uh, Victor for, Surge, like Victor Surge, and yeah, you at the yeah, de- yeah. at the auto dealer show. Right, right, and you know, and the problem with my writing when I was in my twenties and early thirties was that uh, the fiction just felt unreal. the 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 characters didn't seem truthful or real. The situations were outlandish. Uh, the sentences were pretty great, uh, <laughs> I suppose, but uh, you know they were you, in the. That can take you pretty far, Charlie. Right? That's one of some of the things when the sentences. Yeah, but I. It's true, but I didn't. Um, I didn't really buckle down enough to um, to make my stories plausible to make the the novels plausible and since we're talking now uh, just after the release of my novel the sun collective i can say that this novel of all of the books i've published is the one that most resembles uh the kind of fiction that i was writing when i was a young man except that uh, this book um has at least part of its investment in the real world the the other part of its investment is in a kind of wonderland uh a, a sort of phantasmagorical setting but i thought that was justified by the kind of life most of us have been living for the last four or five years completely when did when did you start drafting the sun collective five years ago Okay. Five years ago, uh, uh, just before the um, presidential campaign of Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, and right around the time that I moved into this part of Minneapolis and started walking around the city and talking to homeless people. Those were, I mean, those were really the two things that kind of got this book started. As a writer, it seems like you've always been a walker and that the place that you are in, infuses um, the writing in some ways, in many ways. Right. Because yeah. in, in this and the, so the setting for the Sun Collective is, is Minneapolis. Yeah. Uh, the, the setting for this book is Minneapolis and is full of Minneapolis landmarks, just as uh, the Feast of Love yes. <laughs> uh, was set in Ann Arbor and has uh, a number of Ann Arbor landmarks in it, including Almondinger Park and, <laughs> and the Ypsilanti Water Tower and places like that. Yeah, I you know, I think wherever you are, that setting ends up soaking into you if, if you're a writer. Uh, it, it becomes your imagination's home. And that's how it was with this book and certainly with The Feast of Love. Charlie, how did you decide that you were going to talk and listen to homeless people who become characters in the or have roles to play in the novel The Sun Collective? How did you start as a writer yourself walking around talking and listening? You know, it wasn't really a decision. I'd be standing on the platform for the light rail that would take me over to my office or, or to the University of Minnesota, and somebody would come up to me. Uh, in one instance, at least this guy came up to me and said, have you got a buck for a beer? And I said, yeah, I'll give you a buck, maybe not for a beer. And he said, what are you, from AA? And I said, uh... Not really. Well, sort of. And then I said, because it was in the winter, I said, where are you? Where have you been sleeping? Are you OK? And he, he said, oh, I sleep on the light rail. I said, what, what about the shelters? And he said, oh, I don't 
I don't like to go over there. There's a lot of creeps over there. And he said, besides, they won't let me in. I said, why won't they let you in? He said, I'm a drunk. They don't let drunks into shelters. And I said, well, have you tried to stop drinking? I can't do that, he said. I said, why not? And, he's, and, and he said, because I'm crazy. And I, I, I mean, that, that I, I had conversations like that around the city. And, you know, if you live in a city the size of Minneapolis, I don't know how things are in Ann Arbor right now, but there are a lot of homeless people. And, yes. you know, a, a, yes. a lot of middle class people don't want to talk to them, but I'm perfectly happy talking to them if they want to talk to me. And, you know, they often have interesting stories to tell. So there was that. And there was the other time that a veteran who had been in the war in Afghanistan told me that he had been in hand-to-hand -hand combat in that war and the sweat of the man he was uh, fighting fell from the man's forehead into his mouth, the guy who was talking to me. Yes. And he said, it poisoned me. My, my head hasn't been straight ever since. And, and both of those dialogues are in, the, are in the Sun Collective. They're in the book. Yeah. They're in the book, yeah. Hey, Charlie, would you mind, would you mind reading? I wouldn't mind at all. Um, just to set this up, the opening chapter has one of my protagonists, a guy named Bredigan, who's late middle-aged uh, and has a heart condition. He's on the light rail and he's headed out to the Mall of America, which in my novel is called the Utopia Mall. <laughs> and uh, he's going out there because he has a bunch of he has a group of friends who call themselves the thundering herd and in in the early morning during hot days and and cold days they exercise by doing power walking around the mall uh, when he's when he gets on the light rail um somebody sits down next to him this guy named arvard jefferson and he's he wore a three-piece suit a trench coat and a soft black trilby hat the hat made him appear as if he were in costume he trailed a small suitcase on wheels his glasses consisted of small tinted circles on thin, thin gold frames and some property in the lenses reflected light in such a way as to make his eyes nearly invisible standing in the aisle next to Bredigan, bathed in soapy blue sunshine, he looked down, smiled, and asked if the seat next to Bredigan's, the one in which Bredigan's baseball cap lay, was taken. Bredigan says no, and the man sits down. And for me, this is a kind of perfect situation because I love it when strangers meet. <laughs> and start talking to each other. One of the reasons I like it is that you don't have to go into flashbacks because mm. um, these two characters, the reader doesn't know anything more about these two characters than they know about each other. Um, so you can keep the scene going on in the present. Uh, mm. And the reader gets the feeling that he, she, or they have not come into the movie late, that the movie has started at the moment they started reading. The doctor identifies himself as a doctor of proton analytics, and Bredigan says, I never heard of that. What is that? <laughs> the doctor drew in a long breath. I'll give you an example. He, he has a slight southern accent. I'll give you an example. You see that man over there he asked, nodding in the direction of the young couple who had followed Bredigan onto the train. The man wore earbuds, and a stack of pamphlets lay in his lap. The woman seemed to be studying both Bredigan and the doctor. Yes, the doctor affirmed. That one. As soon as I get off this train, he will ask you for money. He will test you. He will beg you for something, anything. You must give him a dollar at least. Do you know the legend 
of Notre Seigneur en pauvre, our Lord in rags. No, Bredigan said. It's a French-Canadian legend of Jesus, the doctor said, with low-level excitement as he warmed to his subject. And in this legend, Jesus is dressed as a beggar and is roaming the earth, testing the generosity of everyone he meets. It is a spot quiz for your salvation. You could think of that man over there as Jesus. I recommend that you do so. Did you say that you have a medical condition? Bredigan nodded. The airport is coming up soon and I shall have to be on my way, the doctor informed Bredigan. But I will tell you another legend that grew up among my people in the South. This one will help you, I guarantee. It will help you personally. Here is what you must do. What I have for you is a cure, a cure for afflictions. The doctor now seemed nervously energized and was enunciating his words with care as if he were speaking to a child with disabilities. Find a mirror, the largest one you can easily carry, let's say a hand mirror, and take that mirror to a creek, or even better, to a flowing stream, or best of all, a river. And here is what you must do. You must lower the mirror into the water. As he spoke, the doctor's hands moved in the air in front of him, pantomiming, or so it seemed to Bredigan, a vigorous form of washing. The water has to flow over the mirror or the cure won't work. And once you have the water streaming over the glass, you wash your reflected face in the mirror. Not your actual face, but your mirrored face in the water. Holding the mirror so as not to lose it, you wash your face, your reflected face, your face in the mirror, and you will get well. You will recover and renewed. You will prosper. I give you my personal guarantee. Really, I promise you, you will get better. Freed from all your afflictions. This is an ancient cure. It is proven. It is so. There is vast literature to this effect. The little recital sounded like nonsense to Bredigan, but even nonsense can serve a purpose sometime. I must go now, the doctor said. Enjoy your walk and do as I say. You will get better. I guarantee you will be saved. As he turned, his glasses reflected the sun. Perhaps you shall see me again and you can tell me how you got well. So that's in the opening chapter of the novel and this bizarre idea of washing a mirror in the water is uh, something I discovered from doing some reading. I had been doing, this is five years ago, about the 1918 flu epidemic. Charlie, you're, you're a bit of a prophet here. <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, what I found out was that, of course, in those days, they had no idea what was causing the, uh, it was called the Spanish flu, 1918, 1919. I mean, nobody had seen a virus. The micro, you, you can't see uh, a virus with an optical microscope. And so there were a lot of uh, country cures. There was a lot of folklore about the illness, about the germs. And one theory was that the germs collected on mirrors. And so people, particularly out in the country, would take their mirrors to um, water, uh, 
streaming water because streaming water as opposed to still water was thought to be pure and they would wash their mirrors in the water and I altered it a bit so that they they would also wash their faces in, so the, the face in, would be reflected the face would them. be reflected yeah uh, and I just thought dramatically wow what a what a great what a great thing so even though Bredigan in this scene is saying it sounds a little bit like nonsense, it yeah. all has its purpose. And he then later on in the novel, he tries it. Yeah. yeah. For, for Alma, for his wife. Yeah. Yeah. Because uh, for himself, he doesn't care ab about remedies, but he, he loves his wife very much. And thinks that if she has any afflictions, why not try, why not try this on her? And um, she, she has a reaction to it. Yes. A, a, a very radical reaction to it. Uh, and I, I, I don't want to spoil this for your listeners if they should happen to get the book, but what happens is that it opens up a portal between her and the animal world uh, that she hadn't known was there. And it, it changes her life. And also, the other thing that the doctor says to him about Notre Seigneur en Pauvre, our Lord in rags, Jesus asking for money in the last chapter, the very last chapter of the book. The final scenes, yes. The final scene... Notre Seigneur en pauvre shows up and Bredigan gives him all the money that he has in that he's carrying and even uh, his wallet in his wallet but he and gives, the whole thing <laughs> he gives him the wallet he gives him the credit cards he gives <laughs> him everything and Bredigan gets a blessing from um, the man which drives out Bredigan's demons so that um, he's finally at peace. You know, uh, novelists are very tricky. If, if, if you begin a novel with something like uh, an, an oddball doctor, you, you have about a 50% chance that the novel is going to end <laughs> with, with a, a, a scene that, that functions kind of as a frame for the opening scene. And that's what I did with this book. Charlie, did, did you know that that's what you wanted as a, as a tricky novelist <laughs> when you were imagining, envisioning the Sun Collective and in your mind, or, or is it something that you came to as you were writing through? Yeah. Oh, T, I had no idea where this was going to go. I had <laughs> no, when I started this novel, I had no clue where it was going to go, and I thought I probably will be working on this book for the rest of my life. Uh, I, I will never find the form for it. Plot has never been a strong suit for me, and I knew that the book was going to have to be plotted, and I thought, I, I, I don't know how to do it. I, don't, I, I can't see how to do it, and I just stubbornly kept writing. <laughs> Uh, to see if I could find out what shape it would take. And it, it did help me that Bredigan and his wife uh, had a problem, which was that their son has gone missing and seems to be living among the homeless. Yes. And gradually I uh, came up with a younger couple Christina and Ludlow, who, who are would, actually, in some sense, be, are actually be, in the scene, right, Charlie, that you read for us. Uh, it it looks as if that's Christina and Ludlow. Uh, on closer inspection, it's actually not. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> okay. But everybody who reads the scene thinks that it's Christina and Ludlow. It's um, is it like an echo of what's like a, a, a foreshadowing, I guess. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And and in fact. Um, as as we learn, um, Bredigan and his wife are under scrutiny 
by members of the Sun Collective. Yes. And and that includes Christina and Ludlow, who who are they're not versions of Bredigan and his wife, but they have some correspondences to them. And uh, Christina Christina starts to take over. She's, I think, the most intelligent and the best educated of all of the characters in the book. And she becomes the hero, uh, for me, of, of the novel, somewhat in the way Chloe became the hero of The Feast of Love. Um, Christina uh, does her best to save... Um, I, I don't want this to sound too grandiose, but she wants to save herself and she wants to save, she sort of wants to save humanity and she mm -hmm. sacrifices a great deal in order to do that. And, and um, well, I'll just leave it at that. It's complicated too. Yeah. It's yeah. complicated, yeah. The, the how of it. Um, Charlie, also from the um, the early, when we were talking about the scene you read for mm -hmm. us from the Sun Collective. Then it connected to a later scene when Charlie and Alma are in one of the city parks and 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 he's washing the mirror without Alma really know what knowing what's going on. And and that's when I think I think we do meet um yes. the, the real Christina and Ludlow <laughs> yes. in in that yeah. in that yeah. moment. That's right. That's that's where we see them for the first time. Um uh, because uh, Alma seems to need some sort of help, and Harry Bredigan uh, can't uh, do everything that's necessary, and Christina and Ludlow sort of appear out of nowhere and help them along. And after a few pages, there's a break, and, and we then switch to Christina's point of view from... Uh, about a year earlier. Charlie, how, when did you know that you were going to have the act, like the Sun Collective that's within the novel? Like how, how did this uh, community activist center um, come into your uh, vision for, for this novel? Well, you know, I had, I had always been interested in the co-op movement and um, I was interested in some of the little neighborhood groups that have sprung up around Minneapolis. Minneapolis is a much more, I, you know, Ann Arbor is very political, but Ann Arbor has nothing on Minneapolis. Yeah, and um, how, how was the city this, this summer, Charlie? Well, it was in an uproar. It, it was in a complete uproar. And... I live downtown, and uh, on top of what the virus has done, uh, a lot of the uh, businesses just were boarded up. Um, one street guy looked around at the businesses and said to me, yeah, it's a ghost town all over the world. And um, there's a quite a a considerable uh, quarrel, argument about uh, the funding of the police here in Minneapolis. And anyway, yes. I was yes. I was interested yes. in the. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. With good reason. I don't know. It's it's been simmering, and yes, I just wanted to know yeah. with yeah. you as also someone who is walking in the city and yeah. what what you had had seen and felt well I, I you know i just thought what if a neighborhood group that was devoted to let's say opening a free store and having a community garden and maybe was beginning to help uh in getting uh homeless people sheltered in some way or another uh what if i could gather all of this under the general category of the Sun Collective and then 
introduce into this group um, a radical, which turns out to be Ludlow, uh, <laughs> who has something else or seems to have something else in mind right. for the group. Um, if, if he had been reading, for example, Lenin's State and Revolution and wanted to... What if he wanted violent change? What then? And and that was when I thought I could see the trajectory of the of of the book. Oh, um, oh, when sort of when you understood what Ludlow's uh, motivation was, or or so. Yeah, I I had um, a character in the Feast of Love named Oscar, and who was Chloe's boyfriend. And I had absolutely no idea how to structure that book until I realized that Oscar had to die if the book was going to succeed. Mm. And in the same way, uh, or in, I should say, a similar way, I saw that Ludlow, uh, if this book was going to succeed, had to have some real trouble in mind um, for um, uh, the, 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 for the book to achieve some kind of shape. Uh, with, without that trouble, um, I, I, I couldn't see that the plot was going to, um, that, that the story was going to go anywhere important. It's it's so interesting because in a way like there because there are other characters in in the universe that you that you created with like for example um, Tim the uh, Bradigan and Alma's son because mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. he could have been a character that caused but he was seeking some kind of redemption. Yeah, yeah. He has a he has a bad conscience, and um, feels that he's done some terrible things, and he doesn't want violence. He, it's exactly as you say. He wants redemption. Also, he wants to become a a person, a real person. He has that actor's problem of being able to mimic or to pretend to be. Um, somebody he isn't but you know like a lot of actors he's not sure who he is himself and that's that's what he wants more than anything I was thinking of um, Pinocchio you know Pinocchio just wants to be a real boy and um, Tim wants to be an actual human being uh, and he he succeeds eventually. So Charlie, I love this. I love the Sun Collective. This uh, the title of it. I love the book. Um, how it's in the center. I think it's interesting how you have sort of a, um, a, a one of the characters, the leader or the not the guru of the Sun Collective, but a very mysterious man who can only be out of the sun and in the shadows. <laughs> That's right. That's right. It's in, and then, and in the scene, and to go back to the scene that you read for us earlier, because mm-hmm. I didn't, I didn't read along with you. I listened, and it was, it was so, it was so interesting to be able to hear it. Something like hear you reading it, something that I've already read a while ago and had time to process a bit, but I heard it differently. Like I heard these things. Like I heard you say, like there's a test, right? Like, mm-hmm. so it's testing you, like testing Bredigan, and then that there's a cure. Yeah. And then that Bredigan's asked to believe, like if he believes in this doctor of, was it proto-atomic? I, <laughs> but I don't know, being asked to believe, it it feels like that's also sort of this this work of the Sun Collective as well. I guess yeah. maybe for each of each of the characters mm-hmm. in the book. Mm-hmm. Well, um, what 
I think um, fiction often thrives on is to have one character whom you care about turn to another character whom you also care about or are interested in and to say, there's something you should do. And if you do it, you will gain something from it. My previous book was called There's Something I Want You to Do. And th that book is full of what I call request moments. Hmm. And request moments, I think, are always by their nature dramatic. Uh, you you turn to your partner or your significant other and you say, honey, there's something I want you to do. And if you love me, you'll do it for me. Oh, and, and, and <laughs> I'd appreciate it if you do it by Friday. So there's the request, and then there's the condition. That is, if you love me, you'll do it for me. If, you, if you're really my friend, you'll do it for me. Or if you're a real man, you'll do it for me. It becomes a kind of dare. And then you set the story clock, um, which gives it a kind of urgency. Um, the, the doctor hasn't given Bredigan a story clock. Um, so it's open-ended, but he has said, well, if you do this thing with Notre Seigneur en pauvre, you'll be saved. And if you do this crazy thing with a mirror, you'll be cured of affliction. And, um, I just think, you know, these sorts of requests or, um, they're not commands, um, just, uh, they just seem to set the story uh, onto a, a path and in a particular direction. Hmm. And, and you're exactly right that in some sense, the Sun, the Sun Collective is also requesting its members to do something. I mean, those of us who worry about uh, poverty and, and homelessness, I mean, you, you just think, what can I do? What should I be doing? Yes. And uh, so the, the novel is a, is a kind of roundabout answer to that question. Charlie, thanks so much for talking with me today. I've loved it. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you, T. This has been a, a, a great pleasure for me. Truly friend of the show. Today <laughs> on Living Writers, Charles Baxter, his latest novel, The Sun Collective. I'm T. Hetzel. Thanks for listening. Until next time. Maybe I'm in love with you. Maybe I'm in love with you. Maybe I'm in love with you. I say maybe. Maybe I'm in love with you. Thanks for listening to today's program with Charlie Baxter from the Living Writers Archives. Um, tonight, Jennifer Metzger is in conversation with Ellen Stone live on Zoom as part of the At Home with Literati series. Jennifer Metzger's book, Hypergraphia and Other Failed Attempts at Paradise. Thanks for listening. I'm T. Hetzel. Until next time.
Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to your daily sports report here on WCBN 88.3 FM, Ann Arbor. My, I am your host, Ryan Dolson. I am joined here by the amazing, super talented Adam Bressler. How are you doing tonight, Adam? I don't need, why, why do you have to lie to the No, I could, I, I, I could never. That. I could talented never. or amazing, but yeah. I am so excited to be here. This is an awesome concept. Absolutely. Uh, um, I, I figured, you know, we're coming up towards the end of the year. Don't necessarily know my availability, the DSR availability for the next week. So I thought a really great way to ring in the new year. You know, it's December 15th by the time this will be airing would be to do a sports year in review because... What a crazy year, to uh, say the least. So much happened. And in doing my research, I remembered so many things. I was just like, oh, my, how did, how did that happen? How in the world did that happen? But um, I thought, you know, first off, we can talk about news that's breaking tonight. Unfortunately, tragically, this, this is not breaking news. But the Lions, the D- our, our hometown heroes, the Detroit Lions, after a uh, brutal loss, to the uh, Denver Broncos. I'm looking up the score actually for a second so that I don't mess it up. 10 to 38 uh, at Denver, the Detroit Lions have officially been eliminated uh, from the NFL playoffs. And it's such a, such a brutal loss, you know, when you're so close, you know, we're right on the edge of the playoffs and to just be eliminated like this so late into competition, it certainly stings quite a little bit. <laughs> joking 